The following is a recording of Pastor Brian Lindley of Grace Bible Church, preaching a sermon on Galatians 4, 21 through 5, 1, on March 7, 2021. We're going to be in Galatians again this evening, Galatians chapter 4, if you want to be turning there. This coming Tuesday marks a very curious anniversary. It is the 47th anniversary of the surrender of the last soldier of World War II. I'll say that's curious because World War II ended over 75 years ago. So it's curious to say that this Tuesday would be the anniversary of the 47th, 47 years since the last soldier surrendered. August 15th, 1945, VJ Day was the day that Japan surrendered. However, one Japanese soldier kept fighting until March 9th, 1974, over 30 years, almost 30 years later. Lieutenant Hiro Onuda was a Japanese intelligence officer stationed on the island of Lubang in the Philippines in 1944. Shortly after he got there, uh, Allied forces led by the United States captured the island, and Onuda and three of his fellow soldiers fled to the mountains where they hid in a cave and began conducting guerrilla warfare operations. Leaflets were dropped to let them know that the war was over but they thought that was military propaganda. Onuda said he could not conceivably believe that Japan had surrendered. So they kept fighting. They survived on coconuts and rice and what they could steal from villages, meat that they would uh, slaughter from animals on the island, uh, mostly from farms. More leaflets were dropped. They ignored them. Five years later, one of the men died. Another four years later, one surrendered. But still, Onuda and his his faithful companion kept fighting. In 1972, the last of the compadres passed away. He was actually shot and killed by a hunting party who was searching for these men and left Onuda alone for two years until a Japanese explorer went out searching for him, said he was looking for Lieutenant Unuda, a panda, and the abominable snowman in that order. And he found Onuda, and he told him, Lieutenant Onuda, the people of Japan are worried about you. And he talked to them, he explained that the war was truly long over, and Onuda said, I will not surrender unless relieved of duty by my commanding officer. And the next month, a delegation visited him with his brother, who had not seen him in three decades, and his commanding officer, who by now was a bookseller, who told him that he was there to relieve him of duty. The emperor of Japan had ordered an end to all combat. Onuda turned over his supplies, surrendered his sword, and told his brother, I'm sorry I have disturbed you for so long. What could lead someone to hide in the jungle for three decades fighting a war that had already been won? 
What could motivate a person for 28 years of guerrilla warfare with an ever-dwindling list of companions until they spent the last two years entirely alone and resisting even to the final days. Well, Onuda gave an interview in 2001 where he explained his reasonings very succinctly. And he said, in Japan, you go to war to die. That is the absolute precondition. Surrender is the worst thing possible. Well, in our passage this evening, Paul is challenging his audience to consider the pitfalls of slavery, imprisonment on one hand, and the blessings of the promise of freedom on the other hand. In this, over chapter 4 through 5, really from the first verse of 4 to the first verse of 5, he uses the word for slavery eight times in different ways, and seven times the word for freedom. And we're really reaching a transition point where he's, he's going to start moving past the focus of the slavery of the law and begin to talk in the back half of the book about the freedom that comes through Christ. And our entire sermon text this evening is focused on the contrast between slavery or imprisonment and the greater blessings of a life lived in freedom. And so as we dive into it this evening, I, I ask you to consider your own life and think about, are you free? Or are there things holding you captive? And beware before you answer, because it's easy to be mistaken, as Paul shows the people in the text that we're going to look at tonight. In Galatians 4.21, through the end of the chapter, Paul addresses two groups of people. One group thought they were free, but were actually enslaved. And the other group was truly free and about to trade that for slavery. And again I ask, what about you? So over the first three and a half chapters of the book, as we went through it, Paul has used a variety of arguments uh, with the Galatian people to argue that no one is made right with God by obeying the law. That's been the theme of the three and a half chapters we've studied so far. Salvation is gained only through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from works of the law. And in the conclusion to chapter 4, he ties this up, starting in verse 21, if you'll look there, where he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So he's talking to a group of people, the Galatians, who are beginning to be tempted to, to take up the Mosaic law, these, the, another group is, we're going to talk about later, another group is pressuring them into that, and they're thinking that, hey, we need to do that to be right with God. And so he, Paul calls a time out here, and he says, okay, hold on a second. If you think the law is interesting, tell me if you listen to the law, you want to be under it, do you really listen to it? And this group that's pressuring the Galatians, or what we've, we've called the Judaizers, because they want to make them become Jewish, make them uh, obey the Jewish law, and they claim to follow Jesus. It's important to remember that as we study through Galatians. These people are not Jews who deny Jesus. They're Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. They look like 
Christians in that sense, but they are saying that you also have to take up the Mosaic law if you really want to be right with God. And they're so focused on trying to please God in their life that they've completely missed the news that Jesus Christ has already entirely pleased God for them, and he's offering that pleasing life to them as a gift, and they're still trying to earn it. Like Onuda, they're fighting a war that's already been won. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, Paul says of people like this, he says their minds are hardened, for to this day, he says, when they read the Old Covenant, a veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. He says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So he's saying of, the, of these Jewish people, the, the law's read, but it, it doesn't clarify their understanding, but there's a veil over their heart because it, it's there because only through Christ is it taking away. And he goes on in that passage to say, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And he finishes that, it's chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. He finishes it with this verse. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So Paul says in that passage in Corinthians, when the, where the law is read, apart from Christ, there's a veil. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So with the law and no spirit, there's captivity. But with the Spirit, there's freedom. And here, where he says to these people, hey, you want to you obey the law? Do you listen to the law? He means a kind of listening that requires the Spirit. It requires the presence of the Spirit. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 13, uh, quoting from Isaiah. He says, indeed hear, these people indeed hear, but never understand. They indeed see, but they never perceive. And so the challenge to you tonight is, do you really see clearly? Do you perceive when you read God's Word? Are you seeing and perceiving God without the Spirit of God in your life? You can listen to a hundred sermons and you will never understand the significance of the Word of God. Your life will never truly change until you have the Spirit of God, as Jesus says to Nicodemus, until you are born again, not of flesh, but of spirit. And until that happens in your life, if it has not happened, you remain enslaved to sin. You can attend church, you can give to church, you can sing in church, you can do all kinds of churchy things, but you're not free, and you never will be free, and no one is ever free until they are freed by God's Spirit. Now, how does that happen? So tonight, we're going to look at four examples of false and true religion. We're going to contrast four examples of false religion and true religion. And we're going to notice how false religion enslaves while true religion brings freedom. Two of the examples are historical examples that are present in our passage, and two are current examples that are present in our culture maybe even in this room. So the first example of false versus true religion that we're going to look at is seen in the birth of Ishmael versus the birth of Isaac. 
the birth of Ishmael versus the birth of Isaac. And if you don't know who those people are, let's look at the text that Paul quotes and then we'll, we'll get into it. So starting in verse 22, Paul says, It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. Now, this story that Paul is telling comes from the Old Testament of the life of Abraham, way back in Genesis. If you don't know the story, or let's just refresh our memory of it for a moment. So Abraham was a man who was 75 years old and a pagan when God called him away from his homeland to a new land. And he promised Abraham some blessings, including a son. Abraham was 75, did not have children. And he promised that through this son, he would raise up for him a great nation. Ten years later, Abraham still had no son. Ten years after God called him. It's a long time to wait. And after ten years of not having a son, Sarah... The wife of Abraham concluded that she was barren, that she herself, her womb was the obstacle to God giving Abraham what he had promised, and not conceiving fully, or rather not believing fully that God had the power to overcome her barren wound, she decided that she needed to take matters into her own hands. So she told Abraham to take her servant, Hagar, and said, have a child with Hagar. And because of the culture of that day, if Abraham had a child with Hagar, who was the servant, then that would be an heir for Abraham. And so she, she said, this is what we need to do here. She grew tired of waiting on the Lord. He didn't act as quickly as she thought maybe he should. She gave up on him. And this is the heart of false religion. It's attempting to do good deeds by your own power apart from the power of God. The heart of false religion is not doing evil deeds. The heart of false religion is doing good deeds by your own strength that are not what God would have you to do. And that is what Hagar did. That is what Sarah did by giving Hagar to her husband, to Abraham. And, and we are tempted to do this ourselves if you really just think through how often does waiting on the Lord seem too hard? Or does he seem to take too long? Or is his ways too inconvenient? And we're quick in sitting here in, a, in a, a worship space. We think, no, that's not true of me. The Lord's will is, you know, my desire. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. And you may not say it that way. But I really challenge you to think about how many times do you question whether God really wants you to sacrifice that thing that you love so much? or abstain from that sin that you desire, or perhaps accept that truth that you really want to deny, or maybe forgive that person that you really hate. And we question, does God really want me to do that? And we're prone to question God's word because we're lied to by Satan every day so when God told Adam and Eve at creation, 
You can eat of any tree but this fruit. Do not eat of the tree of this fruit, for in the day that you will eat it, you will surely die. Satan came to Eve and said, surely not will you die. And caused her to question God's promise. And it was likely Satan that put it into Sarah's mind that, hey, surely the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, she says. And your servant, she tells Abraham, Hagar should bear a child for you. Surely the Lord would be pleased by this. Surely the Lord wants me to do this. But it was contrary to his promise and to his word. And we're tempted every day to seize by our flesh what God wants to give only by his spirit. Not to wait on him, but to just kind of help things along. I mean, in truth, our biggest problem is not that we don't do enough for God. It's that we think we can do anything to please him apart from Jesus Christ and his spirit. Our failure is thinking that we can please God without God working through us. Sarah's problem was not her barrenness. It was not her inability to bear children that was the problem, because God showed he could overcome that. Her problem was that she had a way to give Abraham an heir through her, son, through her servant Hagar. And it led her to think that this way that I can do by myself without waiting on God and without his power, this is the right thing to do. That was the problem. And that is the essence of false religion. The temptation to settle for the little that we can achieve rather than waiting on the greater thing that God wants to do through his spirit. C.S. Lewis said famously, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. He describes us like an ignorant child who wants to stay making mud puddles in the slum because he cannot imagine what it's like to have a holiday at the sea. And Lewis says, we are far too easily pleased. Now, how can we overcome this temptation? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not think of equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself so that he could be filled up by the Spirit of God. Sarah had not emptied herself. She considered that God's promise was a thing to be grasped, like, like many people today figure that righteousness is a thing that can be grasped. If I just work a little harder, if I just do a little more, as Doug was share, sharing in the community this week, and someone said, well, I think that, you know, God kind of does, he just judges us kind of by the good things that we do relative to the bad things that we do. And I think he really is focused more on, like, how many good things that we do. That's how many people think. They want to grasp that. Like Eve saw that the fruit looked pleasing and grasped it and gave it to her husband and they both sinned. And likewise, Sarah, same with Hagar. We can do this. Let's, let's just take it. And this is what Paul means in verse 23 
by the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. The son of Hagar was born according to the flesh. That is according to the means that they could do. Timothy George says, the birth of Ishmael was the outworking of the philosophy that God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that? God helps those who help themselves. That's a damnable lie that God helps those who help themselves. And for Sarah and Abraham, that philosophy led to the birth of Ishmael, who was a source of contention not only for their own lives, but is the very source of contention between Arab and Jews today. More wars have been fought over that mistake than anything in the history of the world. No. We hear people say that God helps those who get help themselves. But God is not a giver who asks for help. God is a giver who demands total surrender. He doesn't want to help people who are trying to help him. He wants to give us what we cannot achieve any other way. Because his power is made perfect in our weakness. And we cannot be full of his spirit until we are empty of ourselves. We cannot be free until we surrender to him. So Sarah thought she was too old for children at 75. So God waited until she was 90. And then he gave her a child to show he wanted to go beyond what she thought was unlikely to do what was entirely impossible apart from his Holy Spirit. And that is true religion. True religion is God doing for us what only God can do for helpless sinners who recognize their helplessness. And this is what Paul means when he says the son by the free woman was born through the promise. In Martin Luther's commentary on this passage, he correctly identifies the key difference between the birth of these two children as being the word of God. Listen to what he writes. He says, Ishmael is born without the word at the request of Sarah. There's no word of God, if you go back and look in the text, there's no word of God which commanded Abraham to do this or promised him a son in this way. But everything happened by Sarah's plan and by chance. I mean, she says, it may be that I may obtain children by her. That's false religion. That's, that's the word of man. And so Hagar, the bond servant, the bond may bring forth a bond servant. And Ishmael then is not an heir, although he's the natural son of Abraham. He's not an heir, but a servant. And what is lacking, Luther says, what is lacking in the life of Ishmael that makes him not an heir? It is the promise and the blessing of the word. Only by the promise and the blessing of the word is Abraham going to have an heir. And that comes through Isaac, who fulfills God's promise. Saying that to say that if you live without the promise and the blessing of the word, then you're not free. You are not free. You are enslaved to the power of your own flesh. You are limited into what you can do for yourself. And none of us can do enough for ourselves to be right with God. You have to put that to death. You have to give up the tiny works that you can do by your own ability 
and you have to beg God to do what only he can do. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus when he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? It's not possible outside of the power of God to do that. Seek what he promises, a life more full and abundant to those who give, given, given freely to those who trust in him. Our second example of false religion versus true religion is the example from Paul's day, the Judaizers and the church in Galatia. And we see this in verses 24 through 27, where Paul is going to draw out of the story of Sarah and her son, uh, Sarah and her son Isaac, and the story of Hagar and her son Ishmael. Out of that, he's going to draw a deeper truth for his Galatian audience. Now, to, to best understand this before we get into it, it, it's helpful to have the two groups of people in mind that Paul's dealing with, talking to. So on the one hand, there are these Judaizers. Okay? These are Jews by birth, ethnic Jews, who considered themselves the chosen people of God, the recipients of God's word through the Mosaic law, through the law given to Moses at Sinai, on the other side are the Galatians. These are ethnic Greeks. These are Gentiles, not Jews at all, whom the Judaizers claim can only be right with God, can only be in his family if they start obeying the Jewish law. And so Paul's talking to these two different parties. Now, so far they would have agreed with Paul. So far they would have both agreed that, yes, Ishmael was born through a fleshly relationship, with Hagar, who was a slave, servant. And yes, her son was not an heir. And yep, yep, Isaac was born according to God's miracle, supernaturally. He's the, he's the son. He's the promised one. So, so far they're tracking. But the Judaizers would have thought, they're the descendants of Isaac. We're the Jews. We're the descendants of Isaac. And they would have said, the Galatians, are, they're no better than Ishmael. They're not heirs of the promise. But Paul's going to completely flip the script on them. Look in verse 24 where he says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now right here the Judaizers are going to be scratching their head. They're going to go, wait a minute. I don't, I'm not sure I follow you. I, so we're Jews and Mount Sinai is like holy ground to us. That's where the law is given. So I know that's Mount Sinai, holy ground, that's good, check. Hagar is, she's despicable. That wasn't Abraham's wife. So she's deplorable. That's a, that's a bad check. So one's good, one's bad. I don't know what they have to do with each other. But Paul is connecting the two. And what's the connection? One commentator says it very clearly. The link is, of course, slavery. That's the connection between the two. Just as Hagar was Sarah's slave, and Ishmael didn't receive the promises through that God had promised Abraham, so also the Jews are slaves through the law. The law is creating in them slavery through their attempts to obey what they cannot obey. And Paul says, look, anyone born of the flesh is a slave to sin. Everyone born of the flesh is a slave to sin. And any religion that that person undertakes 
apart from being born of the Holy Spirit, apart from new birth in God, any religion that person undertakes is represented by Mount Sinai, where the law was given. Because every other religion outside of the free grace of Jesus Christ is a system of do's and don'ts. And Paul says do's and don'ts is slavery. You can't get to God through do's and don'ts. He wrote way back in Galatians 3, 18, if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And he's already demonstrated uh, in chapter 3 that the law was holding, he said, held us captive, awaiting Christ. So Hagar represents slavery and represents Sinai, for that's where the law leads, to slavery. We are powerless to obey the law. We do not have the power to do it. We can't gain freedom from obeying the law. We'll fail every test, no matter how hard we study. Salvation by law is false religion. And Paul is about to show the Judaizers that. Look in verse 25. He says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, the Judaizers definitely saw themselves as children of Isaac. And they considered Jerusalem the homeland of the chosen people of God. But Paul says, hold on a second, not so fast. He says, Jerusalem's not free, is it? And here he has the Judaizers against the wall because Jerusalem wasn't free in two ways. It wasn't physically free. This is supposed to be the homeland of God's chosen people, but it's in captivity. Jerusalem in the day of Paul was under the thumb of Rome. And Paul says, does that, does that seem like freedom to you? That ain't free. You're under Rome's thumb. And he doesn't have to say this because they know it. Why, why are you under Rome's thumb? How come you don't run this land? Isn't it because... You're being disciplined for not obeying the law that was given at Sinai? So the law that was given at Sinai that you think makes you special, you can't keep it, and that's why you got kicked out of your land. And then when you came back to your land, you got conquered, and you're under Rome's thumb, pagan nation Rome, because you can't obey the law, can you? Which hints at his second reason that they're in captivity. Spiritually, they're in captivity, Paul says. You're, you're so held captive by the law that you think makes you special that you want these Galatians to follow. But that law ain't leading you to freedom. That law's leading you to slavery. You're tripping over yourselves trying to obey that, and you can't do it, can you? You know you can't. That's why you have Rome for your daddy. Their religious adherence to the Mosaic law is the very thing keeping them from receiving the blessings of Christ, from seeing what Christ has done for them. Jesus had this conversation with them when he was walking the earth before he ascended. Back in John 8, he's told, speaking to these people, he told them, if you abide in my word, you are my true disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you, what? Free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they said to him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved by anyone. Now again, they're walking around Jerusalem under the thumb of Rome. They're like, we've never been slain by anyone. Their ancestors were in exile under Babylon. 
Remember, saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone. And they said, how is it that you say that we will become free? And Jesus answered to them and says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin. Now, who is that everyone who practices sin? Everyone. Because everyone practices sin. And Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. That's what Jesus told them. And now a group like them is telling the Galatians, yeah, I know, I mean, the son, that's great, and he's the Messiah, but, but if you really want to be free, you need to come over here and obey these Mosaic laws that we've got for you, like circumcision. And Paul says, no, if you do that, you're, you're, not, you're not going to freedom. Yeah, you'll be going to Sinai, but it's not going to lead you to freedom. It's going to lead you to slavery, just like Hagar. That's false religion. Now let's compare that to the other group. Look in verse 26. Paul says, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And he quotes from Isaiah 54, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. And he's pointing to the Galatians at that point. You are children of promise. Now how is this possible? What does he mean that God promises more children to the barren, desolate woman than to the one who has a husband? It's speaking of God promising to do more through his spirit than what a human can do through their flesh. God's ability to do more through supernatural power than anything that can be done through human effort. And Paul is saying that prophecy is being fulfilled in his day, not by the prosperity of the Jews, but by the salvation of the Gentiles, people just like the ones in Galatia. Paul says, you're the fulfillment of that. You're the children that God's bringing forth from the barren woman. And now... At this point, the Judaizers would have come completely unglued. When Paul says the Jerusalem above is free, he's saying the Jerusalem that you live in is not free. He says, where's freedom? Freedom's above with God. Freedom is separation from sin. Freedom is separation from death. Freedom is a reversal of separation from God. It's being with Him. And where does that happen? That happens up above. And you can't get there through your adherence and obedience to the law. You can only get there through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only the Spirit of God can unite you with God. That's where freedom is. And that's true religion. And Paul's plainly saying, Judaism is not accomplishing that. The law is not accomplishing that. That's false religion. Faith in Christ is true religion. Now before we consider our third example of false and true religion, let's look at the warning from Paul that he gives in verse 29 concerning the pressure to compromise beliefs. He says in 429, 
But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now what's he saying there? Well, he says, first of all, Ishmael harassed Isaac. So that's recorded in Genesis that Ishmael mocked Isaac. Probably most because Ishmael knew Isaac was the heir and Ishmael was the oldest. So there was jealousy there that the firstborn of Abraham wasn't going to be the heir. So he harassed his younger brother. And the Judaizers are harassing the Galatians in the day of Paul. And even today, those are born according to the flesh, harass, persecute those who are born according to the Spirit. A Christian persecution has existed since the dawn of the church. But sadly, very tragically, Christian persecution often means not just persecution of Christians, but persecution by people who call themselves Christians. I want to read what John Stott says about this verse, and it, it really should bring tears to our eyes. He says, The persecution of the true church is not always by the world, who are strangers that are unrelated to us, but often by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. That's his words. And he says further, it has always been so. The Lord Jesus was bitterly opposed and rejected and mocked and condemned by his own nation. The fiercest opponents of the Apostle Paul were the official church, the Jews. And the greatest enemies of the evangelical church today, still quoting from Stott, are not unbelievers who when they hear the gospel often embrace it, but rather the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. And it's tragic that that's true. We've witnessed this or, or sat and heard evidence of it firsthand on one of our trips to Indonesia. We traveled there. We were sitting in Jakarta at a, at a KFC talking to an IMB missionary there. And there had just recently been a group of Christians murdered in that city. And they were murdered by a group of, Islam, of people who were Muslim. And we're talking to him about it and that happening. And he said, um, yeah, he said, but you know the tragic thing about that? He said, do you know who told the Muslims that this church was meeting in this house? It was the traditional church which is what they call, it's literally called the traditional church. It's a, a kind of a denomination they have there that considers themselves the denomination. And I said, I don't, I don't really understand that. Why would they do that? And he said, because they, he said, they're fiercely believers in law. It's a law religion, the traditional church. They don't believe in being born again in the Spirit of God. He said, if you leave the traditional church and become a Muslim... He said, they're, you know, they're not happy about that, but they don't really cause you any grief because they figure, well, you know, you just totally believe in a different God at that point, and we can't help that. 
He said, but if you leave the traditional church and become a Christian, they hate you. Because they, they think, well, if you're going to believe in any if, if you're going to believe in any Christian religion, why would you not believe in our religion? It's the best religion. And they don't want, he said, the, the traditional church, they don't want to deal with the flack that comes from preaching the gospel in a Muslim country. They don't want that. Like, they're just happy to compromise, to go along, get along. They don't want to make any waves. And Christians, like this church who are evangelicals, who are preaching and teaching the gospel, they're making waves. They're upsetting Muslims. And the traditional church, they don't want any waves made. So they just told the Muslims, well, I can tell you where that church is meeting and you can go get them. And they went and they burned the house down with the people in there. And even today, and more and more so, it is becoming in our culture where there are people who want to teach a form of the gospel that has the appearance of godliness, but it is not holding to salvation through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. And there will be even more persecution to Christians by not pagans, but by nominal church people, people who profess to be Christian. In fact, if you'll turn to 2 Timothy I just referenced this verse, but it would be helpful for us to look at it. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, where, where that phrase, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power that I was just referencing, I want you to hear the first five verses, this long list of a description of very unholy things that come before that verse I just quoted. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And that's an incredible list that he gives there. I mean, he's showing us there that there is not any act or any sin that someone won't try to marry with a form of godliness and say, you can do that in this church, that's okay. You could put homosexuality on that list right now in our culture, that people that hold to that and say they have a form of godliness, but are denying the power within. They're denying the power of the Spirit to actually change somebody, to overcome their actions and their, their past history. It's no different than Sarah denying the power of God to change her barren womb into a living one. When God calls us, as Bonhoeffer said, he bids us to die. There's nothing he can't overcome. And these things that Paul lists in these verses have nothing to do with godliness. Though there are some that might have a church that behaves that way and says, it's okay, you can follow Jesus in this church. And we have to be careful and have the discernment to know the difference. Denying the power of God 
though they have an appearance of godliness. And that describes the Judaizers, that's Paul's dealing with, who are denying the, the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ to satisfy the demands of the Mosaic law. And it des describes many in the American church who want to compromise Christianity. For look, it's going to happen more and more because we live in a culture that is increasingly resistant to the very idea of repentance. Repentance is becoming the worst thing that you could call somebody to. Call me to change my life? Who are you to tell me to change my life, to repent of anything? Our culture is resistant to that. And Paul says in, in 2 Timothy 3, we're to avoid such people as those. And back in Galatians, the text that we're in, he says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the bondwoman will not share, or have a, the son will not be an heir with the son of the free woman. In other words, he says, they don't have anything to do with one another. There's, there's no following Christ apart from death to sin and repentance. And speaking now, you know, to, to Grace Bible Church, as we're trying to plant a church in Lakeland, like, we need to be perfectly satisfied standing on the Word of God and the promises of God and be content with what He tells us in Scripture. The message of salvation through faith in Christ alone, demonstrated and ruled by a life that is ruled by Scripture alone. We don't need to fear for our future if we're faithful to God's Word. We must not pursue popularity or be concerned with pursuing popularity. We don't need to offer a commitment-less Christianity, even though that's what's popular. We need to hold to the truth that God's promises are enough. And we'll wait on them. We'll wait on God to do something greater than what we could do ourselves. God, who says of His Word that it goes out from His mouth and it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Reflecting on this passage that we're in this evening, Martin Luther said this allegory that Paul speaks of teaches very aptly that the church should do nothing else but preach and teach the gospel truly and sincerely and by that means should bring forth children. That's how children are born into the kingdom of God, through faithful teaching and preaching of the word of God. And that's how a church should be birthing people, faithful teaching and preaching of the word of God. Just as Abraham's son was to be born according to the promise through the word of God and the spirit of God, so believers are born through the word of God by the spirit of God. If we want to plant a God-honoring church, in Lakeland, Tennessee, which we're, you know, prayerfully committed to doing. We have to do it by God's plan and by God's promise. Preaching God's word, asking God's spirit to give new life to dry bones. There are a lot of church plant strategies today. And very sadly, many of them have little to do with the spirit of God. They involve strategy and plans that don't require all that much of God. They're well-funded. They build attractive programs from day one that can reach families who want the best for their children. 
They have attractive teams that meet in trendy, popular worship spaces. They have great, you know, worship bands that often are attractive to really Christians who are tired of their boring churches who will come on over. And it's very tempting to fall into these things because we, we want the church to, to thrive and we want it to grow. But new life can only come about when God is behind it all. And I really challenge all of us to have plans for Grace Bible Church that we look at and say, there's no way this will work apart from the Spirit of God being in it. That's, that's the harder thing to do. It takes more time. We have to be patient. Going into a community and interacting with people who don't know the gospel at all is the harder thing than people going to other churches, going out and talking to people where they're at, meeting them where they're at, not necessarily waiting for them to come to us, being willing to go to people's homes, being willing to meet in coffee shops or restaurants, not caring who attends the worship service as much as we care about the, the people that are here or going out sharing the gospel. That's what Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Not to just sit back and wait. Offering to meet people where they're at. Focusing on membership, which is not important. I mean, not popular these days, but focusing on membership. Because that's what the Bible focuses on, is being committed Calling people to give more than their time or money, but to give something much more important, to commit themselves to intimate relationships with other people. That's hard to do. And that only is going to happen because God does that. Let's not settle for what we can do with all of our might and all of our abilities and all of our resources and all of our energies. Let's go beyond that and hope for something that only God could do, and then just beg him in prayer that he would do it, according to his word. That's how you build a church of free people who live in the awe of God. That's true religion. Finally, for our fourth example, let's look at Galatians 5.1, where Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The fourth and final example I ask you to consider of true or false religion is your own life. I ask you to evaluate it and think about whether your religion is false or true. John Stott said about Galatians 4, everyone is either an Ishmael or an Isaac. You're either what you are by nature, a slave, or else by the grace of God, you've been set free. And I ask you, are you only what you are by nature? Or have you been supernaturally changed? Have you been set free? You remember Lieutenant Onuda, for 30 years, he refused to surrender because in his words, to be a prisoner is the worst thing possible. 
Yet by his very struggle against surrender, he created a prison of his own making. For three decades, he exiled himself to the island of Labang, which is only about twice the size of the city of Lakeland. And that was his home for three decades, cut off from family, surviving only on what he could find or scavenge, living in a cave with no running water or electricity. Meanwhile, his homeland, Japan, was transformed into one of the most prosperous, technologically advanced modern nations on the face of the earth. He was a prisoner of his own making because he didn't want to surrender. The, the, his former commander who came to relieve him had moved on. He, he had left behind the atrocities of World War II, taken up as a bookseller. But Anuta was still every day eaten alive, fighting World War II that the rest of the world had moved on from, living in insecurity all the time about whether somebody might be hunting for him, whether they might be looking for him, all because he didn't want to surrender. And he was a prisoner of his own making. And I ask you again, friend, are you free? Or are you in a prison of your own making because you will not surrender to Jesus Christ, your true king? Paul says in Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died, for one who has died has been set free from sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. And again in Romans 7 he says, But now we are released or set free from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the way of the written code. There's a sharp contrast between what is gained in true freedom by faith and the imprisonment that comes from trying to obey religious laws. In Galatians chapter 2, we covered a few weeks ago, Paul says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Have you died to the law? Have you died to good works? Have you died to self so that Jesus can give you a new life in him? If you haven't, you have no hope of meeting God. None. No matter how much you do or how much you serve. We have to just always be reminded of that. Luther said, if you have nothing but your holiness and chastity of life to set against the wrath and judgment of God, then you are in very deed the son of the bondwoman and must be cast out of the kingdom of heaven and be damned. If all of you have is the most holy life that you can present and that you can create and your best deeds and your best effort and I'm giving it all I got, God. I'm doing the best I can and I'm going to put that against the wrath of God. Then you'll be cast out because that's not how salvation is gained. It's gained 
through surrendering your life entirely to God, through dying to self, through saying, and I beg you, if you've never done this, to do this tonight, to saying to God, you know what, God, at my best is filthy rags. The tears of my repentance need to be washed. They're not worthy of presenting before you. I have nothing to give you, and therefore I give you nothing. I ask you for everything. Put me to death tonight. Right now, if you've never done that, I encourage you to call out to God tonight and say, put me to death. I have nothing to give you. My best isn't good enough. I'm not going to get there. What Jesus Christ has done for me is greater than anything I could ever do for you, God. If you'll be pleased in Jesus, that's enough. That's sufficient. And to him I trust. And I beg you, if you came here this evening living that life of struggle in, in captivity, be free tonight. Tonight, don't go back home and, and battle anymore. Be free tonight. Are you ready to die? That is the absolute precondition. Anuta got that one thing right. To die is the absolute precondition. Stop fighting to be Lord of your life. Stop fighting today and give your life to Jesus. We're going to take a moment just for a, a silent moment of prayer. And I just encourage you to speak to the Lord. There aren't magic words. When God gave Sarah her son Isaac, she didn't pray magic words to receive that. It was a promise by God by grace. God creates new life by his own doing. You need only to surrender and let him put you to death so that he can raise you up in life with Christ. And we'll spend a moment in prayer and then we're going to close in our benediction. If you have questions about this message or Grace Bible Church, please contact us at info at gbclakeland.org or visit our website, gbclakeland.org. Thank you for listening.